if you, uh, in your notes, if you look at that, what happens in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, he records, there's a repeated recording of the feeding of the thousands. In the earlier book, in the er earlier in the book, they had fed 5,000. Now a very similar situation, feeding, not 5,000, but remember the number in Mark chapter 8? 4,000. Okay, but it's, the, it's that same type of a miracle. A lot of parallels here in, as your notes would put it, uh, number two. If you were to go to verses 10 through 13, you have uh, a repetition of conflicts with the Pharisees. The last time we were talking about this is in chapter 7 where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, and he left the area being very, very irate with the Pharisees, and he headed up into the Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon, and then over into Decapolis. He comes back, and as soon as he comes back into the northern region of Galilee, they start up on him again. But why? Why is it that there's this repetition? Then you see a third repetition as you go through chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, there's a discussion that is very similar and yet a little bit different that Jesus had with those peoples that were following him about bread, about food items. Remember, he had that discussion in, earlier in the previous section with the Syrophoenician woman who comes to him and says, you know, let me have these blessings. And he says, well, that which has been prepared for the table, uh, for the children is supposed to be left on the table. And she says, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the what? The crumbs that fall off. Now he's going to have another conversation with his disciples and he's going to use the illustration of bread once again. Then you go a little bit further in the chapter. And in chapter 8, verses 22 down through 26, there's a repetition of a very unusual miracle. Most of the miracles that Jesus did, he, when he healed people, put a word to it. How quickly were people healed? Immediately? Okay, how much of them were healed? Um, not of, of an individual. Okay, was it were they totally healed immediately? That's the normal pattern. However, okay, then when Jesus healed, when he healed, what did he do most every time? How did he do it? Okay, sometimes there was the touch. Sometimes there was the the spoken word. The only times he used the spit is in Mark. Remember the previous story we talked about? There was the guy who was deaf and dumb, and Jesus spit and he touched his tongue. This is another repetition of a very similar type of thing, one of the unusual ones, that Jesus uses his spit. And it's only in these couple occasions of all the healings. But it repeats itself in, with another guy in Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 8. My question to you is this, okay? If you, if you follow, and if you were saying, okay, I'm going to outline the book, you would all of a sudden see chapter 8 is a consecutive number of stories that are almost identical to what has been in, elongated in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Why would any author repeat very similar accounts of the same, almost identical situations? Either one of a couple things. One is, he's got the stories mixed up, and he's just kind of repeating himself. Like he's, you know, he's on something, and he's got, you know, he has a spiritual dementia inside the passage as he's writing, and all of a sudden he's just gone into repetition mode. 
Or there's this possibility. The possibility is, as he's giving historical accounts, it just so happens, and it's kind of coincidental, that those same stories uh, and same situations repeated themselves right after other situations. Or there's another possibility. Why do you repeat certain elements of certain stories and show comparisons and similarities? For emphasis' sake. Do you ever, when you walk out of the house, repeat certain words to the kids? Like, you better, okay? You don't, well, some of us are already out of that mold, but you remember those days. Okay, so it seems to me, and it would seem reasonable, that what he's doing in Mark chapter 8 is he's trying to put an exclamation point to already what's been stated. Remember what the whole goal of Mark is trying, as he's trying to write this book out under inspiration. He's trying to portray the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's presenting a a spiritual thesis to the Roman people that says Jesus Christ is God and Savior. And so all these stories have a very important emphasis to them, and they're trying to stress something to the readers who are unsaved and to the disciples, because every one of these instances in Mark chapter 8 occur in the presence of all of his disciples. Remember the setting? In chapter 7, he's already shifted gears. What is he trying to do with the disciples, his immediate disciples at this point? He's taking them, and he's trying to do more one-on-one training. So he's taught them some lessons, and he's repeating similar lessons. It'll really become obvious as we go through. So let's just pick out a couple of these different stories and get as far as we can, and we'll pick up the next time we get into this study. Let's start with the feeding of the thousands, okay? How do you know, and this is an interesting, I didn't realize, and this is just my, my ignorance, how many different authors make the case that Mark and the gospel writers get it, got it wrong, that they're not inspired. There are a number of different gospel commentaries out there that say that, Mar- that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 were one and the same thing, but the guys, the disciples decided to elaborate them and exaggerate them, and they basically are identical accounts. If you and your memory... Okay, and you can look down into the text and you can read it a little bit more and then make a comparison in your memory. What are some of the facts between that, that differentiate the two different feedings? Let, let's just start off with verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called the disciples and said unto, they said unto them, <coughs> I have compassion on the multitudes because now they have been with me three days. They have nothing to eat. If I send them away fainting, uh, fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, and many of them will come, have come from afar. His disciples answered him and said, where, where is it possible from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves have you? They said, seven. He commands the people to sit on the ground. He took the seven loaves, gave thanks, break, gave it to the disciples, and they set them before them. And they did set before the people. They had a few small fishes. He blessed them. And then it goes on, tells that all the people were filled. They took up of the broken meat, that which was left. There were seven baskets. And then he ends up in verse a, at verse 9 saying how many there were. Do you, do you remember any of the details that would definitely tell you these weren't the same story? We already know this. One story, they claim how many? 5,000. This story says... There's a distinct number of people. Any other differences? Go ahead. How many baskets left over the first time? 
12. Okay, 12 baskets. How many this time? Seven. It's distinct. How many loaves the first time? Five. How many this time? Okay, anything else? Okay, the fish, before there was two this time? Few. Doesn't give us a number. Anything else? There's a couple other details. How many days? How many days were they before? It, it was the same day. How many days this time? Three days. Okay. By the way, just add this that you, you and I wouldn't catch because of our, our lack of uh, our, our English. They both use the word baskets, but in the original language, it's two different words. The baskets, the 12 baskets, were knapsack sized baskets. This time he uses a term that means large containers, very clearly. We're talking, you know, like bins, uh, the seven bins of, of uh, the loaves. And so we know, you and I know, oh, by the way, there's another factor. This time it's happening in the area of Decapolis. Decapolis, if you remember from any of your Bible Sunday school, who mostly lives in Decapolis? What kind of people? Gentiles. It's more of a Gentile area. It's a, it's a um, small version of the Roman Empire, just a whole conglomeration of people. The last time he did this miracle, it was amongst which people? Jews in northern Galilee, around Capernaum. So all the factors indicate it's two different accounts. By the way, there's one other absolute positive reason that we know it's two different accounts. What does Jesus say in those verses? And he said, did I not do this the previous time? Jesus says there was how many of the feedings? If, you, if you're looking down into those verses. Jesus indicates there was another one, and this one's different. So for you and I who are Bible believers and say that it's inspired, there is no doubt in our mind two different accounts. Okay? What do the two different accounts portray to us? Okay, there's, they give us the details, but they also give us some information. So if you and I were walking through this and saying, okay, what lessons could I just pull from this besides the facts that we just mentioned, what would I do? Well, it's obvious as you just kind of walk through the account. Jesus cares enough to want to provide for the people. I think that's, a, that's an obvious. Jesus initiates the conversation. Let's, let's do something to feed them. Jesus does the provision of feeding them. So what does that indicate about Jesus Christ? If, if you're the writer and you're sending this letter, this account to your friends and relatives, what do you want them to know about Jesus? Not only that he's compassionate, but what else? Okay. What about his power? Okay, all powerful. Okay, what did you say as well? He provides. When he provides, how much does he provide? More than enough, because how, do the people get enough to eat? How do you know that? Okay, it says they were, they were filled, plus there's the leftovers. Okay, and so the provisions. So it's very clear what Jesus is capable of doing. And if I were uh, taking this lesson and talking to some kids or some youngsters, I would make a couple major lessons that I would point out out of here. Okay, number one would be this. Jesus Christ is never, ever prejudiced. He is never prejudiced in his attitude in ministry. How do you know that from this text? Well, what's, yeah, yeah, what's the, who's the featured people here this time? It's the Gentiles. Does Jesus have the typical Jewish attitude towards the Gentiles? Not at all. Not at all. He is willing and he takes the initiative to minister 
to try to help them out in their physical needs to meet them. It's not like he wants to just give them, and by the way, let's, let's be frank, it, it could be easy for us at times to spiritually say we want to help somebody out, but then when we have to do the real legwork, somebody of a different, different nationality, it might be easier to just back away. Basically doing the James chapter 2 idea. Be ye warmed and filled. God bless you. But Jesus shows absolutely no prejudice, none at all. And it's amazing, he's doing a miracle in an area that the Jews, for the most part, wouldn't even go into that area. And so he does the miracle in Decapolis, and he preaches to them, he feeds them. There is another, another aspect I would bring, and it would be this. Christ always has a plan, even when all we see are problems. You're the disciple. We're the disciples. When Jesus says, feed them, what did the disciples automatically, how did they respond? We, we can't. We can't. We can't do it. It's, it's not possible. You know, it's beyond our ability. And it is easy for us to see all the negatives, all the problems, and, why, and all the why nots, instead of looking to say, well, maybe. And Jesus Christ has a plan. He is, he is absolutely committed. When Jesus is talking to them, it's kind of like that previous story. When Jesus is saying to them, let's feed them. Do you think Jesus, when he asked how many loaves, that Jesus knew what he was going to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in those, in those factors, okay, we, it's, it's that whole aspect of, okay, here we go. Jesus is in charge. He's showing his power. Let, let's do the second story. Let's, for sake of time. There's the Pharisees. Now, it, in the stories, as it unfolds, this happens very, very similar to the previous stories. Do you remember Jesus had, at one time, he had gone all the way over towards the area of the Gadarenes. He had sailed during the night, got to the Gadarenes, that region, and he got out, and he was greeted by the, the, the maniac. Okay, of Gadara. And then when Jesus did his miracle, what was the reception like? What did the townspeople say after he healed them? Go away. So then he turns, gets in the boat and he leaves. If you follow this story, it's just the opposite. Jesus is coming from that area and he comes back this time. He comes towards northern Galilee. Now he's in Jewish territory. Who meets him right away? It says that straightway, okay, in verse 10, he enters a ship and he comes into the parts of Dalmanutha. And who comes out to meet him this time? It's not the maniac of Gadara, but it's the maniacs of the... Yeah, it's, it's the spiritual maniacs. And it says, they, what's your Bible read? They began to... Okay, does your say argue? Okay, that's the idea. Okay, and it's the idea in the original language is that when it says they began to is all of a sudden they're coming and with intent and they're going to just kind of pound on him verbally. Okay, that they have every intent that this is going to be a beat down in their mind. And so they start the argument with Jesus and what do they ask Jesus for? This is just absolutely amazing. A sign. Okay, why do the Jews ask for a sign? And what is the sign? What is a possibility of a sign? Okay, let, let's be Jewish. What have we learned from passages of Isaiah uh, about the Messiah? When he comes, what kind of things is he going to do? Okay, do you remember? Heal the lame, make the blind to see. Okay, and he goes on and talks about that. So they're asking for a sign, a a a miracle sign. What do you know has been happening all, all this time? 
He's been doing miracles all along. All along he's been saying and doing things. And, and when he did the miracles before, what did they say he was? His power came from, from Satan. He's in league with Beelzebub. And so what do they say? When he gets out of the boat, they start arguing with him. They say, to prove yourself, you've got to do a miracle. And you and I would say, duh, how many more do I have to do? Okay, and so in, in that context, that's what's happening. And Jesus looks at me, he says, he, and, and by the way, not only does it say he speaks against them, but what other, what other emotion, how is it showing that he's very upset with them? He sighed. Okay, does anybody have another word for sighed? Okay, the idea is he's grieved. He is just, oh. none of you would ever do that. Okay. But Jesus is just like, ah. I, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this nation or generation. Why does he, by the way, it's been predicted before he would give signs. What's he mean by this verse? Okay, they were told to look for signs. What does he mean now when he says there's not going to be a sign given to these people? What? Okay, he's, well, at this moment, that, that's true, it's going to be. His point is, uh, with you guys, I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I've given you enough. By the way, do you remember Matthew chapter 11? He has, and the, there's two towns in this area. There's Chorazin and Bethsaida. Anybody remember what's mentioned about them in Matthew 11, which is about the same time period? Woe unto Chorazin and Bethsaida. If, what? Yeah, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you guys. Because if the things that have been done in Chorazin and Bethsaida would have been done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have, they would have repented. So his point is, he's already given them all that they could, they could possibly swallow or handle. And they say, give me some more. Give me some more. Okay? And that's the setting of this. And that's very important as we continue through what happens in this text. So you have Jesus. You have, basically, as you go through, you have them testing Jesus. Because it says that they, were, they came questioning him to tempt him. Then you have, as we mentioned, the Lord is grieved in verse 12. Then verse 13, what do you have Jesus doing? In response to their hard-heartedness, what does he do? He says, I'm done with signs, and he, he visibly does something. He left. He turned. What verse does this remind you of? If they don't accept, shake the dust, shake the dust and walk away. This is a visual presentation of what, he, what that means at this point. Because, basically, Jesus has had it up to here with the Pharisees. And so that's as we continue through the account, and you know that. What you have, and, and this is not the pleasant lesson, but let, let's make an ob observation here. Christ will never, will never be fully accepted by all people. That's a negative, but is it a truism? Okay, Matthew 13. Remember the parable of the soul, sawyer and the, uh, the seed and the sower? I can't even say it. The soil, the sower, and the seeds. Okay, I'm trying to say all three at once. What, what, is, what is his point in that parable? 
The Son of Man gives out the seed, the word of God, and what makes the difference? It's, it's the soil. What is the very first soil? The road, the rocky, the, the pavement, where the seed can't even, can't even take root. Can't even take root. Who do you think Jesus might have been referring to in that text? Yeah, right? Right? Do we have people alive today who are rock hard in spirit, convinced totally against her? Now, you're talking to the guy at work. And even though he has a religious background, he doesn't appear to you to be that rock hard soil because you're having engaging conversations with him. You know, and that, but the Pharisees wouldn't even engage. All they wanted to do was attack, attack. And they made it very, very clear. So what you have is Jesus being presented. And if you were, if you were Jesus and you're having this conversation, what do you want your 12 to walk away with? Could the 12 get up if they give, give up? If they didn't realize that not everybody's going to respond, could they give up in time by being discouraged by some of, the re, some of the resistance they'll run into? And Jesus is being realistic. And Jesus is portraying for them, not everyone is going to respond positively. Therefore, when it happens, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be defeated. We shouldn't be giving up. That is their prerogative, their choice, and there's going to be opposition. And remember, these folk have even more visible evidence. They have the walking Word of God in front of them, and they still didn't believe. Let's take it a step further, because it's building. The whole story is building. He's talking about Then you have Jesus... And he ties these, these different accounts together. He's done the miracle of the thousands, and he's talked to the Pharisees. And when he left, what did Je- how did Jesus get away from the area? He goes into a boat. It's, this is like, okay, I came to the Gadarenes, got in a boat, was there just a little bit, and they kicked me out, I left with a boat. I go back after quite a while, I come to the area of the, of the Jewish area by Chorazin and Bethsaida, I arrive by boat, and it doesn't seem like he's there very long, and he leaves by boat. When he leaves, interesting how this just follows in, in the concert together. He says he left them, okay, and heads for the other side. The disciples get into a conversation in verse 14. What are they discussing? This this is a funny aspect of this story. What's their conversation about? They forgot the lunch. The irony of it is, how many baskets were left over? Seven, and they walked away with how many loaves? And we would say, dummy. You didn't plan very well. Yes? No? Okay. So they walked away, and they only have one loaf. Now, it doesn't tell us what they're talking about. It just gives us the idea that they're having, and when it says they're discussing or they're having conversation, the intent in the, in the language is this is becoming more of a heated conversation. What, what kind of things might they be saying? Put your, come on, let's get real. What? What? Blame it on the other guy. Blame it on the other Wait a minute. You were the last one with that last basket. You're in charge of the money. And what, you know, come on. You're the one who always wants to eat. 
You know, and so they're having this heated discussion. And it follows after the miracle of the bread, which is very interesting. Jesus then, because the disciples had forgotten to take the bread, neither had they any in the ship but one loaf, okay? Jesus says to them, take heed, beware of the... Okay, he's tying it into the bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They reason among themselves, it's because we have no bread. That Jesus is talking about the physical bread. Okay, and then it goes on. And when Jesus knew what they were talking about, he said, Why reason ye, because you have no bread? Perceive ye not, neither understand, have you your heart yet what? Okay, what's, the, what's going on here? Let's set the scene. Let's put it together. They're getting frustrated because they have one loaf. Why would they be talking about one loaf of bread at this moment? What's the most obvious reason why? What? Yeah, so what, what's that tell you that they're interested in at this moment? They're interested in food. Okay, why are they interested in food at this one moment? Why do you get interested with food at this one moment? You're hungry. You're hungry. Remember they just sailed? They showed up, and then what did they do? They get in the boat, and they're sailing back. That means you're, you're hungry, okay? So they're in a boat, and they're upset, and here we are, Gail. We're arguing over what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? You're the woman. You were supposed to get more of the food. You didn't go shopping. Da, 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 da. The irony of the story. They're upset over the food, the lack of food. What's the irony of this discussion in the boat? Yeah, why? Why is the short memory? And he brings it up, short memory. Who's sitting in the boat with them? The bread maker. He just fed how many people? 4,000 men. Why are you worried about where our next meal is coming from? The creator of bread is... Do you ever get in one of these conversations? Like, okay, uh, bear my soul. I'm home, and we, one of the reasons we went home here several weeks ago is because our parents, to help out our parents with special needs that they have because they're getting up in years. They're only in their late 80s, 90s. And so one of the things we did, we said, we'll go and visit my folks. Haven't seen them for a while. And we'll go there. And I told them ahead of time, when we get there, we're going to do projects. Do you have projects we can help you out? Because I have a brother who lives right in town and he gets exhausted at times doing projects for older parents. Any of you know what I mean? Okay. So we go there and one of the things we're going to stay at the house and we're going to do any projects. So for the first day, I'm sitting there, any projects, Dad? Any projects? Yeah, but we'll do it later. <laughs> any projects? Yeah, 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 but we'll do it later. And it's like, we came all this way to do projects. We want to be here. You know, I don't want to just sit here and sit and chat. You know, but my folks would like to just sit and visit. And it's like, sitting and visiting, just... It's a nice thing for other people to do. So it's, so it's there. That evening, my younger brother comes over to the house, and we're sitting, and we're, we're around the table. Also, my dad says to my younger brother, oh, by the way, you've got to come over here one of these days really soon. I have some projects to get done. And my brother looks at me, looks at my dad. He goes, that's what he points to me. That's what he's here for. My dad said, yeah, but you've got to come and do it. You got to be the one to do it. My brother says, I'm working. He's here. He's lazy. He can work. Okay. And my dad looks at him and says, Yeah, but, but 
I, I want you to come here and do the projects. And I'm sitting there going, I can, I can wreck things as the next guy just as well. I wonder if Jesus sat in the boat like, I'm here. And you're arguing over bread. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians? Well, now, some people point out it's corruption. It's spiritual corruption. What is the most major spiritual corruption that afflicts people? O ye of... Right? And they don't want to believe what he's just done. They aren't... Rem- Watch the comments by Jesus. Having eyes... Didn't you see? See what? What, did, what, didn't, what aren't they remembering? The miracles he just did. And having ears. Didn't you hear me? And do you not? Okay. And, and what miracle does he point out? When I break the five loaves among the 5,000, how many baskets of fragments did you take up? They say 12. And he says, and when the seven among the 4,000, how many baskets of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. How is it that you do not understand? Understand what? What's he driving at? I'm the provider. I'm the provider. I'm the one that can take care of this. I'm the one with the power. I'm the one that you can blank for everything and anything all the time. What's the blank? Ask, trust, rely upon? What is the leaven of the Pharisees? Not relying and trusting and believing Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is bringing the two stories together. And as you put them together, I I think it's kind of ironic. Christ's teachings, let me give you two applications then. Christ's teachings will always be challenged by false, false accusations, false teachings. We know that. That's part of that leaven aspect. But then let's take it. Christ can always be blank to blank. Trusted to provide all the time. You know, yeah, seriously, have you ever done this? Have you ever taken kids, grandkids, and you take them and you do that? I've got to be careful doing this. You twirl them around, twirl them around, and you stop and you say, I'm really dizzy. And they say, do it again. Okay, that's the way the disciples should have been in the boat, right? Do it again, Jesus. That was so cool. You made the food. Make us some food. Not, not in an irreverent way, but in their spirit. That's what they should have been doing. And Jesus is rebuking them for it and saying, listen, you just aren't getting it. You are. Then he comes to Bethsaida, okay? And they had left Chorazin. Now they're by Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man to him. And watch the parallels. The last time that he did an unusual miracle, the people brought the deaf and dumb man. Now they're bringing the blind man. And they're begging Jesus, last time, to touch the deaf and dumb man. Now what do they want Jesus to do with the blind man? Touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town. What did Jesus do with the, with the deaf? I, I'm going to start mixing this up. The, the previous miracle, what did he do with the deaf mute guy? He took him aside privately. He takes this guy aside privately. Jesus, last time, spit Okay, touched his ear and touched his tongue. This time, what does Jesus do? Spits on his, I know this is gross. 
Okay, we're so American that this is really grossing us out. But, and then Jesus put his hands upon him, and he asked him if he saw anything. The man looked up and said, I see men as... Okay, that indicates something to me. I may be wrong in this, but this guy knows what a tree looks like. He, he has that, that comparison, which probably means this man's blindness was not from birth. Okay, so something happened. And so he comes in this and he says, okay, I see men walking. After that, Jesus put his hands again on his eyes and made him look up and he was restored. Question, was Jesus running out of power? Then why is it that, why is this miracle the one miracle where it's done in phases gradually? Consider the setting. Consider the lessons for the disciples. You want to take a shot at it? Okay. And how does it, what happens? They're like, you're right. The, the parallel between the blind guy and his healing, there's a parallel between the disciples and there's the disciples. How much are they getting at all? They're not getting it all. They're getting some of it. But even this, the, even the, this, this setting in the boat indicates they haven't got it all together yet. And so Jesus is going to be working on them, not giving up, but he's going to keep on working with them, keep on working with them, keep on working with them. By the way, does he? Still. 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 In, in the next paragraph, look at the next paragraph. What does he ask the disciples? This, it, it, the way this is all laid out is wonderful. What does he ask them? Who do men and then, who do you think I am? Okay? In this story, in this setting, Jesus is portraying a really phenomenal truth for us. The phenomenal truth is not only the power of God, that is clear, but the phenomenal truth is Christ is always, or very, let's put it that way, that way Christ is always very blank with his followers. Patient. Patient. Have there been moments that you didn't get it? Have there been times where you, wow, this was cool, this was exciting, and then the next trial that came, I don't know what we're going to do. Have there ever been these up and down teeter-totter moments? Does that mean something's wrong with you? Or does that mean we're going through the normal process of growth? And where is Christ in all of this? He's on the other side trying to keep us pushed up. He wants, and when, what... My bottom line question is this. Does Christ give up on you? No. No. Isn't this a wonderful setting? That Jesus is illustrating to his disciples, I will keep on working with you and enlightening you so you get it. I am so glad. I am so glad that Jesus Christ, in his patience of dealing with us, has done time after time after time where he says, don't you remember? Don't you get it? But he continues and continues and continues. And the funny part is, do you remember the next story? You are the Christ. And then Peter's next statement. You are not going to Jerusalem. And Jesus has to say to him, yeah, an up and down moment. Hey, listen, you ever have up and down moments? Don't give up. God doesn't give up on you.